Americans need to be conscious of the fact that these shooters are not just psychopaths. There are people who agree with their views, who are in very powerful positions in our media, you know, and in our government. Recent mass shootings in the U.S. and abroad have been linked to manifestos manufactured by white supremacists and other hate groups. In response, journalists are stepping up their scrutiny and exposing the origins of this hateful rhetoric. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Michael Edison Hayden is a senior investigative reporter for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, which monitors hate groups and other extremists across the U.S. In April, Twitter locked Michael out of his account when one of his tweets linked an American white supremacist leader to the terrorist who gunned down 50 worshippers at two New Zealand mosques in March, and a mysterious fire that had ravaged a Tennessee-based building with connections to the civil rights movement. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Nice to be here. So to start off with, when I get a journalist on the podcast, I like to kind of find out where they came from, how they became a journalist. So how did you end up at the SPLC? And well, in more general terms, what's your journalist journey? Wow. Uh, Actually, (laughs) what's funny is, I mean, I started as a playwright. I never went to journalism school or anything like that. And I ended up, well, (laughs) it's complicated. My wife's father had lymphoma and she's Indian. And we went to Delhi for that. And I needed to work as I usually do as a playwright because I wasn't making enough money. And I took a job as a copy editor for Time Out Delhi magazine, which I got largely because I had gone to Iowa Writers Workshop. And that was enough to kind of get me, you know, a job doing copy editing because of the reputation of the school. And while I was there, there would be a lot of downtime. This is in Delhi, like I said. And they used to give me different assignments. Like I used, to, I used to do like, I used to like, you know, review like restaurants and stuff like that, which was difficult for me because I was vegetarian. I mean, there's a lot of vegetarian food in India, I should note. But, <laughs> but then they would hand me like the literary reviews to do. And I would just do those also while I, during my downtime. And when my byline was out there, I got hired away to be an associate editor at GQ India in Mumbai. And I stayed there for like nine months. But one story I did, I interviewed a serial killer on death row for a story. And the Wall Street Journal asked me to do like a whole, to do a whole series about prisons in India after that. And so I was always like saying like, oh, I'm going to go back for, I'm going to go back to America. I'm going to go back to America. But then I ended up staying five years because I kept accruing work after that. There was a lot of you know, a lot of Western publications that had pulled their foreign correspondence out. There used to be like a whole Mumbai office and stuff. And that's where I, I, I moved in 2011. And then I did all just like all kinds of different stuff, you know, for New York Times. And I covered the uh, Nepal earthquake on the ground for Los Angeles Times and a whole bunch of stuff. And so I was only, I had only done Indian stuff until like 2015 and then I came back to the States. I was looking for a job. I worked, I used to do like kind of contract daily work for ABC News. And I was covering for someone. And we're getting to the, the point of the question, how'd you work for Southern Poverty Law Center? I was covering for someone on the day of Charlottesville. So I happened to be in the newsroom that day. And I ran like 13 stories in two days, like some of which were probably like just garbage in retrospect. But I got lucky. I mean, we... I had happened to be in the newsroom during the first Charlottesville rally, which people forget about, which was in May of 2017. And I had a lot of contacts with the city. 
from that story. I also had known a lot of activists that were down in Charlottesville. And so I got firsthand details of when James Fields drove into the crowd and just a lot of, a lot of things related to Charlottesville in general, just we were able to get out at ABC and then Newsweek was doing like a big, like one of their expansions. Right. And like, everybody knows, I don't, the, the whole saga in journalism of Newsweek of just being like this total mess in terms of just how it's been, been run and stuff like that. And they were at the time they're doing this huge expansion and they were like, you know, very keen on traffic. And they were like, can you, would you come and do get that traffic that you got on Charlottesville for us uh, covering the alt-right? And I was reluctant at first because I didn't want to work for Newsweek. I thought it was a bit of a step down for me, you know, just to try tra trajectory. But I was very upset after Charlottesville and I wanted to sharpen the reporting on extremism because I felt that that they had gotten away with too much in the lead up to that rally. Uh, and I'm thinking a lot of those like dapper white supremacist stories about Richard Spencer, you know, while it, while it news, I started breaking a lot of stories about, about them and Southern Poverty Law Center got to know me and that's how I ended up working for them. So, I mean, what was it that, that intrigued you about this subject or what was it that, you know, I need to write about this. What was the thing that, that sparked you? Well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, we're not we're not going to have we're not going to have podcasts like this. We're not going to have journalism at all if the fascists win. <laughs> that is, don't start with that. You know, that's the truth. People don't realize. I think the stakes sometimes, and I think it's when you are fully embedded in this subject, you do understand it. You understand that they they want to change our lives radically and not incrementally. What they want to do is basically eliminate the very kinds of conversations that we're having right now. And that is one of the main reasons that motivates me. That and the fact that, you know, my mother came to the U.S. from Egypt and was, um, was fleeing violence at that time. You know, my wife is an immigrant as well. You know, these things are very sacred to me. They're very important to me. I don't want to see people like Richard Spencer win. Yeah, it's sort of the the journalism, uh, you know, they describe journalists, they're the people who run towards fire. You're, this is your fire that you're running towards, I guess. Yeah, I'd written some stuff about like climate change and stuff like that. I really thought that was going to be my, <laughs> I really thought that was going to be my thing. I was going to be a climate change reporter because I thought that was a beat that people were going to, you know, whatever. And, and then I got, I wound up in this. I honestly never even thought about writing about this subject. I mean, it was really far from my mind before I started doing it. So is there anything in particular that sort of surprised you about this beat in our conversation before we started um, recording? You mentioned something and it was cl it's clear that this is not necessarily a safe beat to do. Is that something that concerns you a lot? There was a story Committee to Protect Journalists did about me in, I guess it was February 2018, or it wasn't about me, but it featured me. And it, it was just, you know, just about threats I had received and stuff like that. What I would say is, that there are people in parts of the world doing reporting, places like Russia, for instance, in the Middle East, where, you know, it really is life and death every single day. And in my case, it is not necessarily that way. I would say it's not necessarily that way until someone decides to actually fall through on threats. But I mean, there are a lot of threats. And, you know, we met in New Orleans. 
yeah. based on my presentation in New Orleans. That you know, I didn't, for example, announce that I was speaking <laughs> at that event, partly because I just don't want to tell people where I am at a given moment. And I do travel around a lot. So I mean it is it's a concern, but I would say, you know, I don't want to be like a crybaby about it because like I said, it's much worse in places like different parts of the world. Yeah. Now you mentioned New Orleans and we were both at uh, the Online News Association's uh, annual conference down there. And you were one of the keynote speakers and you were on a panel on the first day. You know, that's where I heard you speak and you said a few things that really kind of piqued my interest, which is why I, I invited you to come on the podcast. And, you know, your pan the panel that you were part of was, you know, the topic was global strategies in the fight against misinformation. And, and um, in your opening remarks, you mentioned that hate groups saw an increase in membership in 2001 and 2002. What is the reason for that? You know, what does SPLC, what does your reporting tell you about why that, that happened? Yeah, this is kind of like handed down when you get to SPLC, sort of. It's just part of the the story of these increases. And the, and the first surge we see in hate groups and stuff like that comes immediately after the first census data is released showing that whites will be a, a minority in the United States. It's imperative to note that a minority in the United States is still going to be it means that everyone's going to be a minority, basically, and it's not like there aren't going to be any white people. <laughs> there are going to be quite a quite a few. But, but it's going to be that there are more people of mixed race, I guess, maybe the the way that yeah, there's just going to be that's just, how I've heard it couched. Yeah, people everywhere. I mean, it's basically it's the kind of thing that most people would hear and feel like, well, that's like, it's probably a good thing that we were becoming more diverse. But what happens is for people who are in the neo-Nazi and white nationalist movements, you know, or we could just broadly white supremacist movements, anti-immigrants movements, nativist. This becomes a huge recruitment tool for them. And they begin to expand rapidly. And the very beginnings of the issues that we see coming to the surface with the Trump stuff the first window of that comes around 2000 and 2000, around 2001, around there, when the first census data is written about. I should also note that you know the first time I heard that, I thought like some people in the audience when I was when I was talking that it would be 9/11, which I'm sure did contribute to it. And then there's this whole second story, I guess, that's going on at the same time. And for instance, these terror attacks and all kinds of other issues like the housing crisis, all these things. Obama's election being a black man, all these things play a role in getting us to where we are now, I think, where this has become a huge national story. Yeah, and I think, I guess, the the philosophy or the belief that you talked about is this this idea of demographic replacement, that white people are going to be replaced by someone else. <laughs> yes. So that myth, I guess, is what I would say is, you know, that central myth that this is happening because of something else, right? Because Jews are doing it to people or elites are doing it to people or whatever else. So it is a choice and it's not a natural, you know, occurrence, not natural social evolution or whatever, that this is something deliberate and being forced upon whites in order to hurt whites. That myth kind of lives underneath so much of the fake news and disinformation that you see coming out of the right-wing space 
2019. Yeah, and it's fascinating because if you think about it, if you sort of extrapolate it to things that on the face may be somewhat concerning, somewhat offensive when somebody says, oh, yeah, well, white white people are the most prejudiced against people in the United States. We're losing our rights. Then you begin to see that this idea of demographic replacement is sort of feeding that. That's just sort of an aspect of it. People who hate and are driven by hate in the U.S., but across Western countries, but particularly in the U.S., because we have numbers to back that up, are not going to succeed by hawking their propaganda around the country on its face, just, you know, we got to do this for whites, we got to get together for whites, right? Like, people won't listen, they don't care, and part of the reason they won't listen, they don't care is because they tend to like immigrants. (laughs) They tend to like immigration, okay? They tend not to be paranoid about Jews. (laughs) These these things that the movement, you know, whatever. But we see, like, polling. For instance, there's a poll that was released, Gallup released in August of 2019, right? You always see that they they try to flash whatever polls that kind of grapple onto their narrative. But you almost hear nobody talking about the fact that, that a majority of people want the United States to take in more refugees from Central America. These are the supposed, like, you know, caravan of MS-13 thugs that we hear about and stuff like that. But but the majority of the United States wants more of them there. I mean, this is a very, this is bad for them, right? The majority of people feel this way. So what we tend to see is that, you know, people on the extreme far right are content to take tiny things, make them bigger things, and in terms of like small news stories that they blow up and also take fake stories and make those stories their stories. And that's in order to convince people and get them to understand, you know, different things. I was thinking of like a, a poll that they were referring to forever, which is like a poll that Kellyanne Conway, actually, she was in polling before she was in the Republican party. This is not really full into disinfo because I don't know the entire data of the poll, but there's this one outlier poll, which is like Americans want all immigration to the U S halted. And you just see like all of these right-wing figures referring to this poll for a very long period of time, you know, as if this is like gospel when I, like, as I mentioned, immigration is popular in the United States. Yeah. And, and it is funny because if you, if you look back, you, you tend to look back at, at 2016 and, and the arrival of Trump and the immigration issue, but you know, immigration has been something that, that the right wing has been talking about for years. As you know, this is our central issue. This is the thing we need to get behind. It just came into the greater conscious consciousness when you know Donald Trump was was elected. So, what is the significance of the belief of demographic replacement, and how is it being used used to fuel hate? I mean, this is a journalism focused podcast, and I would not refer the public to read the manifesto written by, allegedly written by Brenton Tarrant, (laughs) we have to say allegedly with him still, who titled his manifesto, The Great Replacement. And Tarrant went and, as we know, on March 15th, I believe, you know, and murdered 51 Muslims in Christchurch, New Zealand. His audience, or his intended audience, was the United States, I believe he said, right? So the beginnings of that manifesto say, it's the birth rates, it's the birth rates, it's the birth rates, like a mantra. You know, what he's talking about there is he is talking about this belief that, like, if whites don't get organized and begin to fight back, and there are all kinds of different things in his 
in his manifesto that you can tie to different propaganda that that we study at SPLC. But the reason why that particular manifesto is so interesting to me is because it is really clear cut what the conflict is in his mind and the type of fear that is pushing him and those who admire him, and there are many who do, to carry out acts of violence, like the kind of violence we saw in El Paso in August, where 22 people were killed in a Walmart over a supposed Hispanic invasion, that was the language that they use. It is this belief that there are not enough whites, and eventually the whites are going to be genocided. And that fear really drives energy towards these hate groups, and it drives, I, I don't know what other word to use, it drives content, quite frankly. And it drives content online, and it drives it on fringe websites like 8chan, 4chan, Daily Stormer, and it drives it on main, more mainstream websites. And that includes Twitter, which is very guilty of this and of just allowing this to happen. And Facebook, which I guess has gotten marginally better over the last year, but still remains a problem. And Breitbart, for example, which we will have some reporting, I think, coming that shows how that website was responsible for driving a lot of paranoia and fear has helped the far right. So it's these, these sort of violent inc incidents occur, you know, there'll be reporters, journalists out there who are going to, going to find themselves covering hate crimes. Uh, violence comes out of this philosophy of hate. And, you know, how is understanding demographic replacement going to help them to cover, cover these issues? Well, I mean, once you, I think once you understand the underlying fear that is driving a lot of this chaos, I think it becomes a lot more clear. I think the worst way you can cover these types of shooting events, for instance, is to just be like, oh, it's crazy. It was a white supremacist and never like really think about what, how someone, you know, becomes a white supremacist, like the sort of dehumanization of the subject matter. I would warn people against, you know, romanticizing them in any way or making them too interesting, like in your mind, like they are very normal. And many of them, particularly the ones who carry out violence are just assholes. I don't know the word to use about that. But um, what I would say is that it is very useful to understand what is is driving these these thoughts and to understand that it is also to be able to tie it back to not just 8chan, which we heard a million times, like, you know, after these shootings. Like, I mean, I don't know how many times I heard 8chan. I didn't hear anything about Fox News, or I heard very little, other than people commenting on the internet. I heard very little about rhetoric from CIS, Center for Immigration Studies, and FAIR, another anti-immigrant group that is put, helping to push policy among Republicans. And these... You know, these groups focus on, you know, doing studies about how many Hispanics are coming, whatever. It's mostly to raise fear, raise alarm. And these mainstream voices that are well-funded, you know, are playing a huge role in feeding the 8chans and the 4chans and these other places. Now, you mentioned you mentioned El Paso. And there was a lot of discussion that came out of in sort of journalism circles after El Paso or immediately after El Paso where – you know, this question that comes up of are, are us covering these events? Are, are we giving the, the shooter, are we just feeding into their narrative? Are we exposing their philosophy? Are we actually helping them? Is it better for us 
not to cover them or cover them in a different way. What are your thoughts about that? That's a really complicated question. I mean, I think that, I mean, I see people get this sort of like, no, you can't do this. You can't do that with the manifestos and stuff like that. I think that that is just foolish. I mean, there's no such thing as you can't do anything. I mean, in terms of how you cover this stuff, it's a, you know it when you see it type situation. When someone is doing it wrong, it's very apparent. Now, how to avoid that? That's the real question. That's what you're really asking. Like, the way to avoid it is to be careful about how you make the manifestos look. If you sensationalize it too much, that is, you're playing into their hands and stuff like that. But it is very important also to note in, you know, when you're covering something like the El Paso shooting, what this motivator was and where it came from. Now, we did a, a story that I'm very proud of. Most of the stories I do are like big investigative projects that take me a long time. But myself, along with a researcher who goes, who is underground and doesn't have a name, <laughs> but is brilliant, he and I did a quick turnaround on Brenton Terrence Manifesto immediately after the Christchurch shooting in March of 2019. And I'm really proud of it because we, in a very short amount of time that we had, took aspects of that manifesto and showed where he was getting it. And he was getting it from places that were considered quite obscure, like writings on a neo-Nazi forum called Iron March, and from places that were considered quite mainstream. And by that, I'm thinking of like, you know, Tucker Carlson type rhetoric, rhetoric that you would see in that Lauren Southern, who was verified on Twitter until she dropped out of this stuff. So that type of writing, I think, is valuable. If you're able to analyze not just what he's saying and just take it like as if it's gospel or whatever, but actually analyze like where is it coming from? What are the cultural forces that make this this shooting happen? I think that that is very useful and it's very useful for people to see because uh, Americans need to be conscious of the fact that, you know, these shooters are not just psychopaths. There are people who agree with their views, who are in very powerful positions in our media you know, and in our government. Yeah, it's funny. Well, it's not funny, but it's interesting. With the El Paso shooting, I mentioned this sort of the discussion around it, but also that it seemed to me very quickly the discussion moved from the shooter and the shooter's motivations and more into the general uh, gun debate that we have. And then as soon as it enters that, it's like, well, you know, as with all these other incidences, you know, we never really come to a resolution of it. Let's just move on. And it's terrible, but there'll be another one like this. And so the narrative then has shifted from about hate and this underlying narrative that's going on in America and more about, oh, this thing that we can never really resolve sort of as a distraction. Do you see that as, as a you know, is A, a deliberate sort of disinformation by the supporters of this uh, sort of a hate agenda? Or do you think this no, is just poor no, reporting or go on? I mean, that that's not disinformation. No, I mean, it's just a, it's just lazy. The media is just lazy. I mean, you know, I mean, they, they go, we always go back to the same, I'm trying not to curse, we the same stuff, <laughs> no, the same bullshit. It's the same, it, it's like they don't have, we're not capable of reporting things in a mainstream way, at least mainstream publications on with a diversity of tactics that is necessary. We go to the same things, the gun town hall, the same stuff that is, you know, ultimately 
becomes very repetitious for people and they tune it out. And it's not a surprise that, you know, with the way the gun issue is covered, that they don't, you know, that, that nothing has ever happened in terms of changing it. You know, the gun stuff comes up because, because I think the CNNs, the MSNBCs and these things, they actually dealing with the question of, uh, you know, issues around domestic terrorism are very frightening because then you actually have to like, wait a second, you know, as far as the Trump administration's rhetoric and Fox News and these things, these are difficult things that are going to offend some people and are difficult to discuss. But and you have people talking about Hispanics in a particular way. You're talking about immigration as an invasion, talking about <laughs> these things. Yeah, that is something we need to address and something we need to talk about because, look, there are some reporters who did that and there were some, some takes here and there. But the question of the broader picture of why does it feel like it moved directly to gun debate is because it, it's the same reason, I think, why we continually move towards the Russia conversation for like repeatedly is because the media is driven by, you know, a certain set of subset of consumers and they get clued into what they want. And then they, the media begins to fill out the content based upon what they want without naming the publication. I will tell you that I worked at very mainstream publication and I would occasionally get assignments that would be like, they would like kind of give you the headline and then you fill it in with reporting rather than you find things and report them out. And I think that's a hu- like a huge problem. And it's a, it's very related to the click based, you know, mindset that has sort of taken over digital journalism because how else are they going to pay the bills at the moment? I mean, I think that there's, a, there's a reason behind that, but that is not the way reporting should be. I mean, the reporting should drive the headline what you see with that is I think it's really like really just very lazy media filling in, giving people the headline and then filling it in with the reporting. Yeah, it's easier because they, they've already got the commentators booked and they know what their point of views are. So it's either to put together a panel. Yeah. So before yeah. we go, though, I, I did want to sort of touch on your experience in April when Twitter locked you out of your account for a tweet that you'd posted. Oh, yeah. Could you sort of talk about that about and, that. you know, how that came about and, you know, the whole ordeal? Sure. I mean, like, well, we... We we should we, we can talk about I mean I I'm talking to my uh, people in, uh, of my craft we all have to use this horrible website so <laughs> like I really feel that Twitter is like as if the the culture of journalism was not punishment enough for people they have to be on this website that is just totally just acidic hateful and absolutely loaded for trolls you know I mean it's perfect I mean I, I personally. I see it and I'm like, wow, I, you know, I want to be on the troll side here. You know, it's just, it seems like a much more fun <laughs> way to use the website, quite frankly. Yeah, but I also do have a conscience. Anyway, so I actually don't remember every detail, but I believe I posted a, yeah, I posted a picture of a symbol that was spray painted outside the site of where an arson took place. In Tennessee, um, they burned a sort of civil rights center. Yes, yes. And because I have a bunch of psychopaths who follow my every move, and like there's a, apparently a Discord where people like immediately my tweets are archived or whatever by a bot or something. But I mean, it's just basically people just trying to trying to like get whatever they anything I give them they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna take. So like this was mass reported, I believe. 
as you know, oh, we got him. He's promoting a hate symbol because I was reporting on it. It was a photograph that was in the Tennessean, I believe is where I got the photo photograph from. So it's like, it's not like it was like not newsworthy. And Twitter responded by locking me out of my account. And I appealed. It took like a, basically a, a day or so. And then I got back. But, you know, when it happened, I think it was a very interesting example of how absolutely bankrupt the platform is in terms of dealing with issues of hate and whatever on there. Because it's like the very people who have come back six, seven times avoiding bans are the same people who mass reported me. I have flagged accounts to Twitter of people who are known white supremacists who the FBI is aware of and whatever, they don't do anything. You know, they're just, they're waiting for somebody to, you know, to flagrantly, I guess, break the rules to the point where they have to do it. But they're not interested in doing this based upon intelligence. You have like some people on there will be like, oh, you know, you just want to censor everybody and whatever. My argument has always been like, I don't care about people using slurs and whatever. Twitter obviously has, should get rid of people who are, you know, doing that or whatever. I mean, like, sure. I mean, if they, people are, you know, using it to harass people, but I'm not really worried about that. I'm, I'm more about using intelligence to understand who these people are, that there are famous white nationalists and, and that sort of thing who are on the platform and using the platform and their audiences follow them. If you get rid of those people, I guarantee you it's a, it's a very good start, but they don't do that, you know? Well, that's great. But at least you got your, your account back so that you can continue to, you know, post things and be attacked <laughs> and, and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> so what advice would you give to a journalist who may find themselves covering, you know, hate groups or may find themselves under attack by these groups for the coverage that they're doing? Well, it's two questions. The first one is advice in covering it. If you want to do it the right way, put in a lot of work is the first thing I was going to say. You know, I mean, I guess all journalism, that's the case. But I think, you know, just be like, he's a neo-Nazi. Like, you know, it's not enough. For instance, the best way to be impactful, you know, I've impacted, I think, the movement financially at times. What I would say is the more thorough your report, the more detail-oriented your report is, the more impactful the reporting is going to be on making a difference there. And if you just come in and just say like, you know, this person's a neo-Nazi according to this, they'll be like, oh, according to SPLC, SPLC is a hate group, right? SPLC doesn't, doesn't count. And, you know, if you do something like that, for instance, they're just going to, they're just going to write you off. And on a different side, if you actually provide evidence as to what the person says, what they believe and things of that nature, it's going to be just way more impactful in your reporting. And that means, means quoting people, getting as many sources as possible, using a person's entire online history to build a case. Thorough is better, is what I would say. And it tends to be that when you come in with someone shared a naughty link or they did a, th you know, it, it doesn't work. You have to, unfortunately, um, you know, get really dirty with it and actually go long and spend a lot more time. And, th and that is the way it should be. I have said this to many people, so I'm happy to share it to any, with any reporter. We need fewer stories about far-right extremists, but more reporting. That means like fewer headlines, fewer, you know, Richard Spencer said this, fewer, this is back online, you know, it's just free advertising for them and stuff. What we need is 
deeper reporting that exposes how these things work, where the money flows are coming from, who people are from behind the scenes, how they organize when they're not being seen, the things that people who are part of hate groups or people who are in our government who are involved in, in the hate movement, you know, I don't know how else to put that, expose those details, spend a lot of time reporting it. That is what we need. We need that rather than the kind of just website, bad website said this. That's the first thing. Second thing is you asked is how do they, if they find themselves under attack for these groups. This is particularly concerning at the local level. I've had, you know, people call me or contact me, you know, from, you know, small towns down south and stuff like that, where it's like, I want to report. I think there's a, you know, this hate group is in my town and it's like they're doing stuff and I don't want to report. I wrote a guide on open source intelligence for Columbia's Tau Center. And I would recommend everybody check out the security section there. There's a lot of detail, but the main thing is you want to pull all your information off the internet if you're going to get involved in this stuff. That's a lesson I learned late. You want to keep your family and protected. You want to get their pictures off the internet where possible. And just be careful is what I'd say. And if you or feel in an unfamiliar place and you want advice, by all means, you can DM me on Twitter or you can email me. I'd be happy to hear you out. I am busy. I get a lot of messages, but I'm happy to, I mean, particularly if somebody is concerned about something. I would say another thing is you always have time. Do you, you know, you don't need to break scoops and stuff like that and just like slam a story through. Like take your time. If it's going to be your, like your, if it could be dangerous to you, stuff like that. Slow it down. It's more important than getting the story out there is to get sure you're safe and get the story as good as possible. Michael, thank you for coming on the podcast. This has been really fascinating. Again, thanks. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. We also just posted the results of our online survey about journalism resources. Check out what tools some of our readers are using to make good journalism. Everyone who took our survey received a free It's All Journalism mug. If you'd like to score a mug of your own, take one of our surveys. Go to itsalljournalism.com to learn more. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>